Football on the Sports Social Podcast Network is brought to you by BetVictor, where new signings are guaranteed a great debut. Join and choose your welcome offer at betvictor.com. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away. Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Hi, everyone. What's up? Chelsea fans, I hope you're all feeling good. This is Xavier Mbuyamba, and you're listening to the Blue Day Podcast. Enjoy. Hello Chelsea supporters, here at the Blue Day podcast I am pleased to welcome this individual on the podcast today. This individual made 101 appearances for the club scoring three goals, plus he played with the likes of Gary Chivers, John Bumstead and Clive Walker. Here is Chris Hutchins. Chris, welcome to the show, how are you? Yeah, thanks Keith, yeah I'm good, thank you, just uh, yeah, enjoying life at the moment, but uh, I'm keeping well, thank you. Good. Chris, I'd like you to take us back from the very start of your footballing journey. Who or what in particular influenced you to become a professional footballer? Well, I was a big Jimmy Greaves fan. He was a goal scorer and uh, I loved goal scorers in the day. And, um, you know, I used to follow him avidly. And um, obviously at that time supported Tottenham, which doesn't go too, down too well with Chelsea fans. But, um, yeah, he was... Uh, but the hero who I type, type of followed and I suppose probably guided me in the way to be doing what I did and uh, very, very fortunate enough to do what I've done. I never never thought it as a job. It was something that I was very privileged and, and lucky to do. For those listeners that perhaps didn't see Jimmy Greaves play live, what kind of striker was he? Was he a sort of target man or was he more of a fox in the box, for instance? Well, I think that fox in the box was, was Jimmy Greaves. You know, he had the an uncanny knack of being in the right time, right place at the right time. And he always used to seem to stroke the ball home. He never used to sort of lash it or smash it. Uh, I mean, Shearer used to smash it in. Mm. Um, but um, but Jimmy always, like, I don't know what it was. He just had that knack of being there. And um, sometimes you can't coach that. It's, it's something that you're, you're given and it, um, you know, you're lucky to have it and, and make a living out of it. Now, Chris, you signed for Chelsea in July of 1980 from Harrow Borough for £5,000. Just explain to us, how did this move come about? Well, I'll take you back a couple of years prior to that because I was apprentice at Southend and then I signed pro for a year. And the manager there was a, a great man who's sadly not with us now called Arthur Rowley, a fantastic goal scorer in his day. And um, I, was, I was halfway through the, the season when I was a pro um, not basically getting anywhere, playing in the reserves, not getting a sniff of the first team. And the previous year, a few of my mates had gone up to, to South Alton Ealing Borough and playing part-time. 
And uh, they seem to be enjoying it, having a good time, earning a couple of bob. I thought, well, I'm going to go and do that. So I went to see Arthur. We come to an agreement, mutual agreement, um, had my, my contract terminated. Uh, and I went and played part-time for... And the manager at the time was Jeff Taylor, who was a big Harry Bassett man uh, and had worked with Harry, you know, throughout his, his later career. Um, so I played there for a, a season or so, well, just over a season, maybe two seasons, and then got transferred to Harrowborough. Now, Harrowborough, Mike Tompkins was the manager, and it was fantastic facilities at, at that football club. The, gr- the ground was immaculate. The pitch was fantastic. And that's why... We used to play uh, QPR, Fulham, Tottenham, Chelsea, Brentford. All them teams wanted to come and have a pre-season game with us. So I was lucky enough to... to we played... Um, we were playing Tottenham in a friendly this particular night. And uh, Jeff Hurst was the manager at Chelsea with Bobby Gould. And I think my name had been mentioned a couple of times by the scout to them. So obviously it was an opportunity to come and watch the likes of John Lacey, Mark Falco, uh, Hazard played... Um, you know, all of them boys, John Pratt played, I think Stevie Perryman played. Um, so it was a bit of a mixture of the first team and reserves of, of Tottenham at the time. And they come down to watch a few of their players. I did particularly well this game. Um, and then they watched me, I think, three games after that. And then they took a punt, you know, with an almighty £5,000 bid that secured me. <laughs> um, I was very, very fortunate to get a, a second bite of the cherry. But in the meantime, when I was playing part-time, I went to college and went on the trail, become a bricklayer, was working on the building site. So that allowed me to get to games over the evening, you know, finish about three o'clock, get to games, et cetera, et cetera. So I, had a, I knew what it was like to work. So when this opportunity came along, I mean, I, I signed for Chelsea for less money than what I was working and getting paid for football. But it was the opportunity that I could never, never, ever turn down at a club yeah. like Chelsea. And... Um, you know, I was very fortunate to get a second bite of the cherry. And it was I was never going to fail then for the lack of effort, dedication, mm. preparation, whatever it might be. And obviously, the higher you go, the, the, the more ability you have, et cetera, et cetera. But I was never going to fail for the lack of effort and dedication. And, and that's what, you know, pushed me forward. I remember first pre-season, you know, I'd be, be running my socks off and, and the other boys, older pros, would be saying, hey, Hutch, Hutch, hold on a minute, steady, like we've got another three of these to do. But for me, I was giving my all each and every day. Yeah. And that got me through my career as, as such. So very fortunate um, to get a second bite of the cherry. And then obviously it went on from there. What was your first day of training like with the first team? Well, it was strange because like, I'd, I'd uh, dislocated my shoulder at the end of the previous season. So obviously the, the medical staff had to make sure my shoulder was all right and, and all this type of thing. So for the thing was for about the, the first month there, I had to avoid any contact with the shoulder just to let it settle down and then do obviously my strengthening exercises after training, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, but once I got into it, you know, I can always remember there was Alan Hudson, who was my hero there at Chelsea, uh, Colin Viljohns, Mickey Droys, Clive Walkers, you know, um, there was some, some Mickey Fillery, you know, Chiv Bunners, you know, some very, very good players. Conin Lee, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is for real now and you've got to embrace it and enjoy it. And I went to training to enjoy every day. You've briefly mentioned Jeff Hurst, who came to see you play against that Spurs eleven. What were your thoughts on Jeff Hurst as a coach? Well, yeah, I mean, Jeff was, was very quiet, methodical, knew what he wanted to do. 
But to be quite honest, you know, he'd, he'd scored a hat-trick in a World Cup final. So if Jeff said jump, I was going to jump. If it was good enough, you don't get any higher esteem than that, Keith. You know, <clears throat> of the pinnacle of your career, you're scoring a, a World Cup final. And not only once, but three times. <clears throat> Fantastic achievement. And, and Bobby was a little bit more of a laugher and joker. Um, we had a great bit of fun with Bobby all the time. Um, but yeah, they, they gelled well together. Now, you made your Chelsea debut in October of 1980. Do you remember who that was against? Yes, I know it was against Cardiff. We played away. And, and prior to that, I've been playing in the reserves. Um, I think I'm not sure whether it was one or two subs at that particular time. Might have been just one sub. And I'd played particularly well these, these previous three or, three or four reserve games. And <clears throat> on away games, Jeff used to, used to try to involve one of the reserves to, to go along and, and be involved with it get a little bit of experience, all, all them type of things. And um, it, it was just, well, it was my turn. You know, I played well, I go along. And after 20 minutes, Mickey Fillory gets injured. So, you know, Jeff says, go on, quick, get warmed up quick. And, uh, and on you go. So and I can, I can, I've, I've got it on video somewhere, the goal. I've got it. Yes, because you scored on your debut. Exactly. Went down the left, crossed it, and I was about six yards out. And I just coolly side-footed in. And I can remember, it must, I had a goal disallowed. I had a 25-yard shot that flew in the top corner. And I think Clive might have been offside for it. So, um, but yeah, I mean, very, very fortunate. And then that was the springboard of your career, your confidence that grew, um, you know, and it, and it went on from there. I mean, I was a midfield player at that particular time. And then uh, when John Neal came in, he, he put me to left back and I played left back quite a bit. I'd like to talk about John Neal if I can. He took over the manager's role in the summer of 1981. What was different about John Neal's coaching approach to that of Jeff Hurst? Well, John was very a very quiet man and Ian McNeil was his, was his right-hand man. Um, and they were both reasonably quiet, but, um, you know, put out what they wanted to, um, you know, within the, the, the team plan, the formation. But formations then were normally... Four four two. There was never, you know, four three two one or, or mm. two, and you know all that type of thing. It was pretty, pretty box standard, and uh, and players players knew their jobs. And um, like I say, it was um, it was a strange time because then he, he brought Joey Jones in, and like it was me and Joey for left back. Although Joey started at right back, um, uh, and then it, then we all moved on from there. You did become more of a regular for the Chelsea side in the eighty one eighty two season. This must have been a huge confidence boost for you and your development as a player. Yeah, of course. I mean, that goes without saying. It breeds confidence. And you know, the more you play, the more confident you get. And we were, you know, we were winning matches and, and doing reasonably well in the leagues and, and that. So, um, yeah, it, it was quite good. I can always remember, though, that Alan Hudson was, he was always a like a like a role model to me when he was at the football ground because he'd be one of the first in. And we'd all, he'd always say, come on, Chrissy, let's go and play keepy-ups you know, just play donkey, like, you know, we keep up flicking it here, there and everywhere. And then us two become three or four and then it becomes six or eight and others joined in. And I'd always remember him coming short for a ball one time and I hit it long up to the striker. And he, uh, and this is the moment when I, I grew up at Chelsea, I feel, is that he said, hey, come on, give me the ball, Chrissy, give me, give me the ball. And it might have been in a reserve match, I think. And I says, look, the, the manager wants me to hit it long. So if I don't hit it long, I'm not going to get in the side. And he came over to me and he patted me on the back. He said, OK, I understand. And that was the moment I felt, because he was my hero. I would never 
want to argue with him or disagree with him in any shape or form. But that was the, the grow-up time for me of, oh, you've arrived and, and other people can see what you're doing and accept it, although it wasn't his way. So, um, yeah, that was a big turning point in, in the career of, yeah, come on, let's kick on now and, and see what we can do. That particular moment with Alan Hudson, that must have helped you not only as a player, but also later on when you went into coaching, that ability to provide the right guidance to young players. Definitely. I mean, that, all these are experiences that you take on, you know, throughout your career, whether it be playing or coaching. And there was, there have been circumstances, you know, that have, that have cropped up like that. And I can relate to instantly and thinking, yeah, you're, you're doing the right thing. You know what I mean? So um, it's all part of experience and learning. Sometimes you get it wrong, but um, you hope to get more right than wrong. <laughs> One game that stands out this particular campaign was the FA Cup fifth round win over Liverpool, which you played in. Chelsea won the game 2-0. Let's just put it into context, though. Chelsea were in the second division and Liverpool won the European Cup the previous season. Do you have any particular memories of this game? And what was the Stamford Bridge crowd like on this particular day? The first thing I'm going to tell you is, is quite unbelievable because... I was on my way, <clears throat> excuse me, on the way to the ground and the traffic was horrendous. And I'm looking at my clock, I'm clock watching to be in at a certain time, obviously. So, and the traffic was, was not moving. So I think I'm just going to have to park my car here and run down the way. So I parked my car. Right? Uh, this is true. I must have had three quarters of a mile to go. And I'm running down the road, running past all these fans. I've got my soap bag in my hand. I'm in my suit, tie, collar and all this type of thing. I just get to get there in time, you know, for team talk and all that. And think, and, and I park my car. I'm thinking it might be towed away by the time I get back, you know, because I just think I've got to leave this to get there. So, so from then I'll go. We go into the game, and um, yeah, what a game! What an atmosphere! I mean, them being champions at that particular time, fantastic result. I think Rosie scored, Peter Rose Brown, and was it Colin Lee who scored? That's right. Yes, I think it was. Yeah, and so that was a. A massive, massive result for us against the champions who had everybody playing at that particular time and probably a major shock. And, and the other one that stands out was the Tottenham game that we had. It was another, another cup game. I don't know if you can remember that one. 3-2 defeat. We got mm. beat 3-2. We were leading. I think we went 1-0 one, one up at half, just before half time. Um, and it was Ozzy LD, this Oddle, and, you know, all the boys were, were out and the uh, and, and people like that. And we got beat 3-2 in the, in the end. And I know Glenn Hoddle scored. He took from outside the box. He just, he just smashed it low. And I, was, I went to close him down and it just whizzed by me and into the far corner. We got beat 3-2. But again, the atmosphere at Stamford Bridge was unbelievable. And, and we, you've got to remember that we had the, the, uh, the running track around it, the dog track around right. it. Yeah. So, so the fans were even further away. Mm. But the, uh, the shed was, was unbelievable, you know. Um, but, and great days, you know, something that I'll, I'll never forget. On the topic of the FA Cup, how do you value the competition personally, Chris? And do you believe that the FA Cup is still the best competition in this country? Oh, without doubt. Without doubt. I mean, I know teams, you know, chop and change players for, for cups these days. Um, and I can understand it to a certain degree. But, but as a player, I would always want to play in the FA Cup. And I'd always want to, want, you know, to try and get to the final because, you know, that they arguably are the pinnacles of of your career and that's in history you know what I mean it's cemented in history so um yeah it's a shame that teams do devalue it to a certain degree at times but I can also understand them 
you know, if they're in Champions League, for example, and they've got that, you know, a couple of games coming up and rotating players, I do, I do understand that way as well. The next season, Chelsea signed in the summer two players, two names that haven't been mentioned too much on this podcast, in David Speedy and Nigel Spackman. Chris, in your opinion, what did these two bring to the team that was perhaps lacking at that time? Well, David Speedy brought aggression. You know, he, he was only five foot six, five foot seven, but what a good player. What a fantastic leap he had. He was fantastic in the air and you'd never think he'd win as many headers as what he did and little flick-ons. And he was so tenacious that that, in, that was effective and, and it rubbed off on other players. Um, I'd, I'd have numerous arguments with him, but I mean, that, that was him. He wanted to win it all the time. We all did. Nigel come in and, and influenced the team in a, in a different way. You know, he was much calmer, um, went about his business. Obviously, you know, if, if he wasn't doing your job, he'd get onto you as well. But both very, very good players and, and probably helped transform the team at that particular time of, as every team needs a little bit of refreshing, shall we say, at, at times. Um, but they were the right guys to come in and, and, and help that, you know, uh, in abundance. Now, you was a constant feature down the left-hand side for Chelsea. What did you prefer, left-back or left-midfield? Um, I probably found it easier playing at left-back because everything was in front of me and you can see a, a bigger picture where obviously you, you, you're pushed up one or in, in more centrally. You know, you've got to be much more aware of what's going on around you. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I found left-back easier for me with everything in front of me. Um, you know, and, and I was pretty good. I had two good feet, to be quite honest. You know, I could hit it left foot, I could hit it right foot. And people used to say, well, I'm not sure whether you're left-footed or right-footed. So that was a big advantage to me. So I could cut inside and I could whip crosses in, you know, after going down the line uh, and things like that. But I could also get to the byline and, and, and pull it back with decent crosses with my left foot. So um, I'd probably say that left back was because right. uh, that's where I, I, I finished off and, and played the remainder of my career. The 82-83 season, Chelsea were nearly relegated to the third division as it was. They managed to stay up two points above the drop zone. Chris, why, in your opinion, was Chelsea so inconsistent during the time in the early 80s? Uh, I don't know, really. I mean, we had good players. For, for some reason, it didn't work or, or players had loss of form throughout that, that particular season. Games that um, you arguably should have won and didn't win or drew. Um, it's just an inconsistent season, I think. Um, did we play Bolton at Bolton late on in that year? And we drew 2-2 two, two, or we won? It was 1-0 with Clive Walker scoring the goal. Was it Clive Walker who scored? Yes, it was. Right, right. I was going to say, I thought I could remember that game and, and uh, or vaguely remember that game. But um, that was a big turning point of, of surviving, I think, of, of that game, uh, of staying in the league. But yeah, it, was, um, it wasn't good times. As, you know, when you're getting beat, you don't like to it, especially with a club like Chelsea because um, you're expected to do so much more. I mean, as you say, the players we had in the Chelsea side, they weren't poor players. The likes of Colin Pates, Clive Walker, Mike Fillery, Gary Chivers, mm. Paul Canneville, just to name a few. All very, very good players. Very good players. You know, Mick, Mickey Fillery, Anna's, yeah, yeah, Paul, yeah, you know, very, very good players, but for some unknown reason, I mean, I always just think Mickey Fillery should have should have done so much better with the ability he had. Mm. Um, but it, he did all right. Don't get me wrong. But 
I felt that he could have gone on to, to bigger and better things, to be quite honest. Um, but it didn't happen for whatever reason. Uh, but yeah, you know, just Paul Cannaval, another one, you know, you know, really quick, really skillful. And arguably sometimes Walks was the same. If, if, if them players go missing and they're your, the players that can actually open up teams that aren't doing it, whether they're closely marked or they're totally off their game for whatever reason, you know, you miss them big time. Mm. You know, and you need your best players. You know, I can hardly say, talk about England. You need your best players. A bit of magic from someone that opens up the door and, and that's the difference. You was in and out of the team in the beginning of the 1983-84 season. Did you have a conversation with John Neal about this? And did he know about your frustrations because of the lack of first-team football, knowing that the previous two seasons you was a regular starter for Chelsea? Yeah, I think that's, I'm pretty sure that's when Joey came as well. <clears throat> and um, Joey Jones came. And um, I can remember, and we played up at Blackburn, and I cut my head right across my fore, forehead, and I'd about, at half-time, about six, seven stitches in it. Went out and played, obviously, and then... Um, I, th- I think that might have been on a Tuesday night or something like that. And then on, on the Saturday, I wasn't in the team. And, and that excuse was, oh, you've cut your head. And I said, no, I'm prepared to play. But I mm. think he wanted to swap. Because I was at left back. Joey was at right back, I think, at that particular time. And then he, I, he wanted to put Joey at left back. I can't remember who was at right. Might have been Lockie. Gary Lock might have been still there. Right. Might have been at the to play at right back. Right. I think. Um, so... Yeah, I was frustrated and annoyed at that because I was willing to play, you know, even with a, you know a, a bit of a bandage on the head. But that was that was the circumstances. Uh, yeah, I become frustrated, and then you know I didn't want to play because I'd been a regular for a couple of seasons. I didn't want to play on the reserves, and mm. you know I wanted to you know prove that I could play, you know, in the first team again. Yeah, you ended up leaving Chelsea to join Brighton for fifty thousand pounds in November of that year. Was this move orchestrated by yourself, or was it down to the club? No, I think um, I played. We played. I played for Chelsea at Gillingham in a cup game, and Chris Cutland had come to watch that game. Who was manager at the time at, at Brighton? Obviously, liked what he saw, and then they put a bid in for me. But you know, it was, it was strange circumstances because I played Chelsea against Brighton down at Brighton, and then the fans come on, and there was a big ballyhoo about that, <laughs> where they, you know, the ground started getting wrecked, and you know, they was, they was on the pitch and. I was supposed to have been inciting a riot, which couldn't have been further from the truth. I mean, I was I was coming off the pitch after we won. Well, I think we either won one nil or two nil down at the old old Brighton ground. Uh, and I always used to clap the fans, win or lose. You know, that was always a thing that I, I respected um, and to respect them spending their hard-earned money to to travel and come and watch games. And um, I was walking to all where our fans were, and there was a policeman probably. I don't know, maybe five yards away. He was on the dirt track. I was just just four or five yards on the pitch. And I was clapping the fans and he went, come on, get off. You know, get off. And I was standing there clapping and he said, hey, come on, get off, get off, get off. And I just turned around and said, oh, bleep off. So you can imagine what I said. And then and I jogged off and went down the tunnel. And then from that point on, there's all the fans come onto the pitch and then on the crossbar and the bars and all that. And a few of the Brighton supporters that were in there at the time Obviously, had heard this, and probably probably said, "Oh yeah, you know, uh, inciting a riot, do this, do that." So, a week later, you know, I was at the train at the ground, and uh, the police come, and John John Neal called me in and said, uh, well, "What's been going on? I mean, what are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> and 
And then obviously Brighton coming in for me, I'm thinking, wow, what do I do now? You know, what the going to think of me coming down there? But it was the, the gamble I took and um, I wanted to play first team football. So you earned yourself a bit of a reputation from that then? Yeah, yeah a little bit, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, but there we go. <laughs> Before we talk about current events, you also enhanced your footballing profile as a coach, working with a number of clubs, both as an assistant and as a first-team manager. Was there any possibility of you returning to Chelsea as a coach, or was that more hearsay and rumours? No, that must have been hearsay. I mean, uh, you know, at the time I was working with Paul Jewell, you know, I, I ended up playing at Rotherham, and then I went on the coaching scene at Rotherham with with Phil Henson and, and, and John Brecken. And then Chris Kamara got the job at Bradford and he asked me, Bobby Davison had played at Rotherham and, and, and Chris knew Bobby and he asked Bobby about me. He said, oh yeah, good coach, blah, blah, blah. Um, he said, all oh, right, I'll take him to come and do the, do the reserves. So I went to do the reserves. Then I was working with the first team and then Chris got the sack at Bradford. Um, so the chairman had asked Paul then to, uh, to take over as an interim manager. But he said to me, he said, I want you to work with me. Because obviously Paul were just still playing, finishing playing, you know, in that that little bit of a role. So he wanted me to, to come in and, and take the coaching and that, which I did. And then, you know, Paul got the job. You know, he wanted me to become his, his full-time assistant. And it, well, we were very, very fortunate to get two or three promotions, survive, get to the premiership, survive in the premiership, which is, you know, an unbelievable feat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Paul moved on, I think went to Sheffield Wednesday. I was asked if I would like to take over the job. And, it's, you know, it's an opportunity that you can't, can't give up, yeah. you know, as you might always regret. But going into that job, I knew that we'd be in the bottom three budgets. You know, I knew that we'd be, we'd be down the bottom struggling, but mm. it was a chance I was willing to take. Um, and the same happened at Wigan. You know, Paul went to Sheffield Wednesday, didn't get on so great at Sheffield Wednesday, went to Wigan, wanted me to go to, to Wigan with him. Again, we did the same thing, you know, went through promotions. We got to a cup final, a Garling Cup final against Man United. Got to the Premiership, survived in the Premiership. So some people, if you do it once, some people say, oh, it could be lucky. But we did it on numerous occasions. So we had, we had a formula that, that somehow worked. And as a team, Paul and myself worked very well together. Um, and then, you know, we'd gone to Derby, we'd gone to Ipswich. Mm. Um, and in between that, I'd managed, you know, at Walsall for a couple of years, and helped out at uh, Market Drayton. A friend who went to Market Drayton asked me to come down and do a few sessions and chain at Shrewsbury. Um, ended up the last coaching that was, was at Barnsley with Danny Wilson. Mm. Um, so that, that was good because it was right on my doorstep. Yeah. I lived at a place called Holmfirth, which is just the other side of Huddersfield. So it was nice to be at home instead of being at, at Ipswich or Derby or Wigan, you know, and travelling and et cetera, et cetera. So very fortunate to have, been successful in, in what we've done um, but you never seem to gloat about it you just you know it's that's for other people to say oh you you've done well yeah, of course one game I did want to discuss with you about was Wigan's first Premier League game it was on the 14th of August 2005 Wigan played host to Chelsea who at the time were Premier League champions they won the league the previous season you yourself, you're back in the Premier League as a coach with Paul Jewell and you turn to your right and you see a different Chelsea with multi-million pound players on the bench, let alone starting. 
and you see Jose Mourinho in the dugout. What was that whole day's experience like for you? Well, it's probably the week leading up to it. You know, you, you've had your pre-season and you're building up to it. You've had your pre-season games. You've been away trying to gel all the players together, you know, having pre-season games and, and trying different formations and, and setups. But the whole week then is obviously, you know, preparing, preparing, preparing. And um, I can always remember Jose, he, he come to us and just said, uh, we didn't deserve to win. Sorry, lads, because Crespo scored last minute. Fantastic yeah. goal, you know, from corner of the box into the far corner, left foot, yeah. trademark Crespo goal, isn't it? You know, and you're thinking, oh, wow. But to have taken <laughs> them so close mm. was a massive confidence booster because we all know you, at the time, if you're playing Liverpool, Man U, Tottenham, Chelsea, it, Arsenal, it, it could be four, five, six, seven. And that's what yeah. you're fearing in the back yeah. of your mind. And obviously you go into a game plan that we're thinking, right, let's keep it quite tight, you know, for the first 45 minutes. Let's get, we did the same at Arsenal, Man U, you know, let's not give an early goal. Otherwise I think the floodgates could open here. So uh, you get to half time, and then as, as time goes on, you grow into the game and, and, then it, and then it becomes a little bit more stretched. They want to win. We want to win mm-hmm. because you can go a little bit gun ho and then they, they do that. It's heartbreaking stuff, you know, but we t- took a lot, a lot of credit from that moving forward into that season. So it was a great learning, learning curve. Very disappointing to lose. But, and, and, and funny as it seems like, I got the sack at Wigan and we played Chelsea that day. Mm. I got the sack when we, we got beat. I think it was... I seem to remember, I think Chelsea won the game 2-0. It was back in 2007. I'm just speaking about is that we go, you know, we're thinking you have targets, you know, you've got to get the right first 20 minutes, keep it tight, don't don't be elaborate. Don't don't stretch the game. You get to half time and think, right, great, done this, done that. And then at half time, if you're getting beat one 0 you're thinking, well, we've got to have a little bit more of a go now. Yeah. As, as I said, you don't want to get beat six, seven, eight, which these teams can readily and easily do. Um, and then I got the sack, and we got actually got clapped off the pitch at Wigan for the way we performed in the second half, although we lost two 0 mm. And I got the sack for that. And I'm thinking, well. I'd have got the sack if we'd have got beat 7 8 nil. that's for sure. Having a right go mm. and thinking, well, what was your game plan? So yeah. I was I was a little bit miffed at, at Wigan at that particular time. Um, but that was their decision and, you know, you have to abide by decisions and, and what the chairman says. The crazy world of football management, eh? Exactly. Chris, just a few more questions before we do go. I want to get your thoughts on VAR. I've asked this question to all my previous guests. So, Chris, what's your opinion of VAR, please? <laughs> well, it's minute, isn't it? Hey, it's minute, but huge at the same time. You, you know, of uh, what do you agree with? What don't you agree with? Um, I, I disagree with stopping the game for the, for the amount of time that they do. But at the same time, you want it to be clear cut because we're all human. We all make mistakes. And it, let's be, be honest with you, you know, you're watching VAR and it's like you can watch it three or four times and still not be 100% sure. And as a referee, which is a really, really hard job to do, it's so difficult to get them decisions 100% right all the time. Mm-hmm. The, the biggest thing for me is that when somebody's attacking and they're offside and they let it roll and roll and roll and roll on, and then it's called back. I'm thinking, you're offside, just stick the flag up. Why, why don't mm-hmm. they do that? I don't understand that because... 
at some stage there will be a bad, bad injury through letting that carry on because they know it's offside and you're just pulling it back. I, I don't understand that, the meaning of what they're trying to get by letting it roll and then bringing it back probably five seconds, could be 10 seconds, 15 seconds later. I, I just think surely it's for the safety of the players that you have to think, you know, the, the safety issue basically. Of why? You know, it's a free, if it's offside, whistle, it's done, dusted. You know, arguments, that, that's how it is. But to let it roll on and on and on frustrates the life out of me. <laughs> Everybody's opinion is different, isn't it? You know what I mean? We could all see the same thing, but have a totally different view on it. So you'd always need a, like three people or five people and go with the majority, wouldn't you? Yeah. But then you're still not going to please everybody. So it's a fine, fine line of judgment that you have to come up with. And I always think that you're always going to have this, aren't we? You know, crickets, you know, they... You know, they show the cricket, the, the, the bowels go off, it's out. You know, it's so I'm not sure how, how, how it can, whether you'd stop it would be a good thing, but you might be able to modify it. But in which way and how, I, I'm not sure how, it, how you'd go about it, to be quite honest with you. I think we will leave it there in terms of VAR because I think we'll be here all day. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on present day Chelsea? Well, Tuchel's done a fantastic job, no doubt about that, in, you know, Chelsea becoming European champions. But I think we've got to, we mustn't underestimate the job that Frank did, mm. you know, um, with the youngsters, the mounts and, and all these type of people coming through. Um, he must take a, a hell of a lot of credit for, for that work, you know, and, and, and a lot of people would say, well, it's a little bit unjust that he got the sack. But at the same time, he had spent money, which will always be, be thrown at him. Um, but it takes time to develop. Tuchel's brought back, shall we say, some of the more experienced players in, into the side, which has been a big factor. Now, whether the, Frank was rotating them on a more regular basis and they didn't like that, I don't know where now they might be playing a lot more that, you know, that they're happy with. There, there's lots of little situations that you don't know what goes on behind the scenes regarding them situations or may have fell out with Frank or, or whatever, you know what I mean? Who, who knows? And so, um, <clears throat> but going on to today, yeah, I mean, you know, they're a force to be reckoned with again, aren't they? You know, and if they're looking to buy, <clears throat> a, you know, a striker, which they, they seem to be linked with a lot of the, the time, um, it only bodes well for the future because, you know, it, it'd be interesting to see whether Liverpool can come back again. Man City, you, you expect them to be in there. And if they get Kane, which they're all talking about, you know, I think that would be a massive plus for them um, and probably make it even harder. But, you know, you, you take your hat off to where they are and, you know, it's um, it's a magnificent achievement uh, and they deserve all the, the, the credit that they can get. Hmm. Just finally, Chris, how do you look back on your time at Chelsea? Uh, with fond memories. Um, you know, I, like I said to you, I, I, I went to there on less money than what I was when I was playing football and, and, and working for a living. I knew what it was work to work, work, and I never felt it was like work. So, you know, for a club like Chelsea to come and, and ask you to play for them uh, and then, you know, be relatively successful in playing for them, you know, nearly 100 games, whatever it is, you know, nothing but fond memories and great, great times. I think I, I've been invited down, I think it's next May, to a reunion of, of, of that era of, of players going down. So I should probably go down to that. I've got to get back in touch with the people to say about that. So... 
that would be nice to, to see the Pates' banners and, and people like that again, Joey Jones and, you know, a few, few others. So um, I'm sure that would be a good night. But um, fantastic club, fantastic people who, who worked with behind the scenes as well. Uh, and, and all the players, you know, uh, fond memories of them. Brilliant. Well, Chris, I appreciate your time coming on to the Blue Day podcast today. So thank you very much. Cheers, Keith. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, pal. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Podcast Network.